Some years ago, I found myself in a debate with an old mate on the topic of fruit. Yeah, he was the kind of guy that I'd find myself in an argument with about anything. I don't like it, I told him. My metabolism's too fast. I'm generally far too hungry to enjoy nibbling away at little bits of fruit. I need burritos, I said. Penne pasta. Falafels. Boiled eggs. Potato salad. Pizza. Protein and starch that will fill the giant hole in my belly for an hour or two at least. Whereas berries barely touch my esophagus before they've been metabolised. Apples, I said. Burn my gut. They're volatile. You've got to be careful with them. I think of them in the same category as, like, party drugs. Sometimes I exaggerate, you know, just to make my point. You really can't think of a single fruit you like, my mate asked, knowing me well enough not to properly believe me. What about grapes, he asked. You drink a lot of wine, after all. What about watermelon and cantaloupe? What about figs, eh? And so it was he got me reminiscing on one of the summers I spent in the Mediterranean. At its zenith, I arrived on an island in the middle of a sweet blue sea. It was one of those garden lands where food is super abundant, where the air is redolent with sweetness, where trees drip colour and the ground is littered with fallen fruit. There was a young woman there who would walk up and down the white beaches yoked with a box she'd cobbled together from offcuts of timber. The box was decorated with little pictures painted in pastel colours, and in it she kept innumerable pieces of ripe fruit, which she'd sell for whatever meagre coins you had. Around her hair was a garland of fig leaves. She must have walked countless kilometres every day, Perhaps she circumnavigated the island, following the contour of rock where it met the water, scrambling over headlands and circling in the lighthouses which at night pointed out the dangers of what the Greek poet Homer called the unharvestable sea. Out there in the salt water, no fruit could grow. But on that island, the earth put forth its bounty, and even the laziest cultivator could reap from its fertility. Fittingly, it was a season of festivities, a time of celebrating Mary, the mother of Jesus. Different cultures have often put fruit and life together, and fair enough, I guess. Indeed, every night we would travel by various methods to a different village caught in the highest crags of the island's mountainous spine, drinking the pressed and fermented produce of the last season's grape harvest, rich wines that tasted of fire, Alongside that there was eating, gossiping and dancing, all of which lasted all night. And for two weeks straight I reckon I saw the sunrise, rosy fingers reaching out over the sea, each day dawning with the colours of plums and lemons and tangerines. Late one night, or more realistically sometime in the early morning, I met that young woman who walked the beach with a box of fruit, She still wore a garland of fig leaves, 
and I was amazed to see that the leaves looked as fresh as they did when we would see her first wandering up and down the tide line in the late mornings of those summer days. It was as though she had decorated herself only moments before we met, at 3am, as the chance movements of a communal dance brought us arm in arm for a time before we dosy doed towards someone else. Later we had another dram of diabolical wine together. And later still, we caught each other feasting on leftovers of lamb cooked in lemon. And later still, when the musicians had finally stopped playing, and the dancing was finished, and the sun was climbing high in the sky, and someone was murmuring that it was 10am, we began slowly meandering back down the mountains to the beach. We had 20 kilometres to walk to get back to the village where she lived, and the nearby cave in which I slept at night. But 20 k's was nothing. It was the perfect way to wind down a wonderful night of partying. If only, I realised halfway down, we had more food. It was a long hike without Tucker. Perhaps we should have pocketed some pita bread, a handful of meat, some pistachios, My new friend noticed I was a little put out. What's wrong, she asked. Pinau, I said. I'm hungry. Pinau poli. Very hungry. In that moment she pointed above our heads, and there, hidden under the large leaves of a stately tree, were several ripe figs. She pulled one down for each of us, but the effect was more like she had caused them to appear created them from nothing. I bit into mine and was suffused with warmth and sustenance. It was as though the whole fig had absorbed the whole of the summer's sun and fertility, the pleasure of the season, the rich flavours of possibilities. I could feel myself being given strength. That fig powered us for hours, down the mountain and back to somewhere we could sleep. So, yes, I do like figs. Love them, even. And as I told this story to my friend, I remembered another fruit-related miracle. It happened at the end of a long bush walk in a remote part of Tasmania. Somehow, on the ninth or tenth day on hoof, my mate and I caught a glimpse of a banana hanging off a branch. It was a surprise to see a banana. But we'd been out bush for days and days and we craved fresh food and so we didn't overthink it. Impulsively, we took this banana down, split it in half and replenished ourselves with it. It was truly delicious. In a short while along the trail, we spotted another one sticking out of a knot in a eucalyptus trunk. We broke that banana in twain as well and gobbled it up. Magnificent. Miraculous. Further on we found a third banana, wedged into a cleft of sandstone. It was then that my walking companion remembered a news report he'd read about some guy in New York City leaving food laced with poison out for homeless people. What if this was the same situation, he asked. What if these bananas had been tampered with? What if this was toxic fruit? So we didn't crack the third banana. 
but a couple of kilometres later we found my friend's brother, a mate of mine as well, sitting by the river and we realised he'd generously gone in and placed these bananas along the track for us to find. It was perhaps the tastiest fruit I've ever eaten. I may have enjoyed those three bananas even more than the six-pack of beer that was cooling in the creek. Maybe. For the past couple years or so, I've been living here, in an old train carriage that's been converted into small, quaint living quarters, perfect for a solitary and literary sort of person such as myself. And although this summer in Tasmania has been so warm and sunny that I've spent almost all of my time bushwalking in the mountains, there are still occasional days when I keep to myself out here, scribbling, reading, and noticing the mood of the forest around me. Such days surely won't be so few and far between come autumn, and the season is changing. You can tell by the way the hours of sunset are closing in, or by the behaviour of cockatoos and ravens and flame robins around the yard. You can tell by the final flourish of flowering trees, and you can tell by the appearance of fruit around the perimeter of the clearing in which the carriage sits, all doled up, painted as red as the skin of a Fuji. One of my favourite trees around here, or anywhere, is the native cherry tree, or the cherry ballard as some call it, Exocarpus cupressiformis for those who like a Latin binomial, a beautiful tree with dark, chunky bark and timber that can have a lovely rose colour. Instead of what we'd normally think of as leaves, it has branchlets that do the work of photosynthesising, and at the height of summer they put out a fruit although the part that looks most like a fruit, like a miniature oval cherry, is actually not a fruit but some other bit of plant matter which terminates in a growth that looks like a miniature nut, but that's actually the fruit. Yet you can eat the part that is not a fruit but looks like a cherry, and it is sweet and delicious, and tastes like long, leisurely afternoons. A real treat. Particularly because the cherry ballard also comes with a resource that is rare in the native forest around me. It offers quite a lot of shade. So on hot days I've been able to go out and hide in the canopy of these cherry trees, foraging, nibbling away. However, I don't think you'll see native cherries all punnetted up in the supermarket anytime soon. The cherry ballard is a parasite. It only grows on the root systems of certain eucalyptus species. I suppose it would take some technical expertise to get a native cherry plantation going, and I reckon it's best to leave it alone. Perhaps it's all the more enjoyable that you can only snack on them while wandering around walking tracks in the ephemeral warmth of this time of year, where you find them. Anyway, the native cherries are winding down. The prickly currant bushes are still replete with the tiny glossy baubles they produce, looking so much like droplets of blood. They're not as sweet or delicious, but you can eat them. 
I know a man who used to live around here. He plonked bunches of them into bottles of cheap gin to make a fancy, burgundy-coloured elixir to share around. Yet there is a turn-off, if you know your Latin. For the genus that these bushes belong to is coprosma, which comes from an old word for dung. And indeed in the mountains, where the variety of native currant puts out bigger, more orange fruit, the taste can be much more bitter, even quite bad, if not exactly like shit. There are flax lilies here too, and they produce a purple fruit, and I notice that something's been gnawing away at it, but it's not me. Some of the fruit from this genus are poisonous, so I tend to leave them alone. Further along the track, a couple of kangaroo apples have gone through the motions of fruiting too, and these also have a threatening fruit, toxic at some stages of its growth, but said to be edible at other times. My landlady's garden is a bit beyond that. It's perhaps little surprise that the flora in her netted beds are not natives. When colonists came to Tasmania, they didn't find much in the way of native food that seemed to fit their expectations, beliefs, or economy. It wasn't like this on most of the other voyages of European expansion. For example, when the Spaniards landed in a 16th century Mexican market, they became acquainted with an array of new foodstuffs, including a largesse of fruits that would eventually become popular ingredients around the world. But the fruit of Tasmanian forests hasn't really caught on in the same way. I suppose in general much of it's like the native cherry. It's not easy to exploit. And I quite like this. The bush is indifferent to our use of it. And the real essence of Tassie is that it doesn't just give itself away that it holds its cards close to its chest, that it keeps secrets, that it doesn't simply yield itself to the mainstream or to anyone's economy. But down by the river where I have been skinny dipping almost every day since the summer properly hit, there's another fruit that's become a bit more trendy. The mountain pepperberry is a pretty tree, characterised by red stems, and it produces a spicy fruit as the summer winds down, although it seemed to start pretty early in my neck of the woods this year. I pocketed a few today. It was of course known to indigenous people and ignored by early colonists, but pepperberry has suddenly come in vogue, and fair enough I suppose. It's got a lovely flavour to it, it adds a lot to a diverse range of dishes. At this stage of the year I pop the odd handful into a pasta sauce or a mole or a lamb ragu, or I grind it onto eggs. Of course, the pepperberry has always been yummy. It's only that our tastes have only recently come around to it. And no doubt the inhabitants of this island have for centuries known that it has certain properties that make it useful for plenty of different things. Now, though, for most of us, I would say that our relationship with the pepperberry plant is superficial at best and the current taste may just be a passing fad. But I have been wondering if we could not perhaps use our interest in the culinary element of the pepperberry plant to care more for the entire bush. Through the fruit we might get to know the plant better. And if that, then why not concern ourselves with the whole ecological habitat in which this piquant fruit comes to being, to learn about how it relates to rainfall, soil, fungal filaments, 
pollinating insects, oxygen, light, others in its own species, us. Food has so often allowed travellers an opening into other cultures, but we might also use the fact that some fruit is edible and even palatable to us as an invitation to enter more deeply in the world around us, more generally. Years ago I read a remarkable survival tale about avocados. You see, the avocado tree evolved on what became the American landmass throughout the Cenozoic period, when megafauna were prolific. And it produced a fruit that could be eaten by giant horses or ground sloths, things like that. And these beasts would later shit out the seeds elsewhere, rather than directly in the shade of the parent tree even depositing it in a nice bed of manure. And all of this would give the seed a better chance to generate a sapling and therefore bolster the survival of the species. Such was the avocado's technique of seed dispersal, which is essentially the evolutionary purpose of fruit. But for the most part, giant mammals began to disappear from America around 13,000 years ago. The timing coincides with some scientists' calculations of the presence of humans in parts of the American continent too. I don't think there's a consensus just yet, but the yarn I read suggests that humans may have filled in the ecological niche left by the extinct megafauna, which they may have wiped out. And they might have plucked the fruit, broken into the crocodile skin, nibbled the little bit of flesh underneath and then tossed the hard, stone-like seed away, sometimes by accident, in the right conditions for them to sprout anew. And later these people, the first indigenous Central Americans, learned how to cultivate this tree. And I have seen you, friends, with your avocado stones in jars half filled with water, and the spherical seed is held aloft by an intricate architecture of toothpicks like some miniature shrine to a strange religion. Only the heavens know whether or not you will ever see the propagation of your very own avocado tree, but you seem pleased to be having a crack at it anyway. I shouldn't tell you that in southern Mexico one autumn I helped an old woman climb into the branches and gathered an innumerable bounty of beautifully soft avocados. It was more than enough for even megafauna, The old lady pulled down a whole shopping bag of them, and we used a few for ourselves and sold the rest for a pittance. I've never been so disappointed as when I came back to a supermarket in Tassie and remembered how expensive they were here. Limes and mangoes too. But on the other hand, in Launceston in summer, there is an excess of locusts, ripening in the shadows of wide leaves and dropping to the ground uncared for. 
The locust is a subtropical tree native to China. It's imported here and primarily planted for decorative purposes, but the fruit is bloody delicious. When I lived in Lonnie, I would look forward to the evenings just before the solstice when I would go out with housemates, scrumping for these neglected fruits and others, nature strip plums and apricots that hung over backyard fences. We had free fruit for weeks. And it's strange to say, but I never saw anyone else raiding these lovely locust trees. Not even the possums. Secreted within the locust's yellow flesh, there are four smooth brown seeds like oval hazelnuts or river stones. They are among the most beautiful things I've ever seen created by nature. These two I kept like talismans for as long as I believed was reasonable. Then I would go back into a park or a yard, hold the seeds in my palm, breathe a line of poetry, and throw them as far as I could. This is not the method of seed dispersal that evolutionary processes might have anticipated. But perhaps it works nevertheless. My own form of agriculture. For a long time I truly believed that the locust was a fruit mistreated by the population of the whole planet. But then I went with a Turkish friend to visit her father in Gaziantep, not far from the border of Syria. Here the locust is called Yeni Dunya, a curious but majestic name. And at the onset of the searing summer heat, the yellow fruit was collected around the city for culinary purposes. Here they found worthwhile use. But then there's perhaps nowhere in the world I've ever been that engages with fruit as intelligently and imaginatively as the people of Gaziantep. My friend still emails occasionally with unlikely recipes, knowing I appreciate her culture's exquisite cuisine. And so it was that in a shack on the slopes of a low burgundy-coloured mountain, my friend's father, Alatin, sliced slightly tart locusts in half. And then he made small mounds of ground beef and spices. And taking a skewer that looked like a straightened-out Ottoman scimitar, he alternated the meat and the fruit piece by piece before placing it all on a hot grill, charring it before turning the sword to the other side. So by all means, take my endorsement. Next summer, wherever you are, go out scrumping for the locust fruit. Try it yourself. And please... Invite me over. Yeni Dunya Kebab. It's bloody delicious. Now as the summer slowly fades away, 
the most prolific fruit out here are the blackberries. They're everywhere all around me. They hem me in. Every day I go out into the edges of the forest with a set of secateurs or a pair of shears, and I try to manage them, to stem the tide. A neighbour drove by the other day. I was halfway down the road wrestling with the bloody brambles. What the hell are you doing, he asked. Fighting the good fight, I replied. He seemed humiliated on my behalf. At least one interpreter of ancient history has said one of the earliest alphabets, an antecedent of the English language, was written in sketches of different plants, each of which had a sacred meaning. Maybe none was more potent than the humble blackberry, its form an image of great importance, used in mantras and spells. I'm not sure about that, but why not? Each time I go into the bush hereabouts, I end up with lacerations that look like hieroglyphic characters, a poem written upon my arms in red ink. And if by day I've been lopping the rampant canes of these brambles, at night I'll see them imprinted on my brain, like thorned vines crisscrossed and intertwined with all of my most profound thoughts. I'll dream of them. There will be an infestation that crowds out all else in my imagination, and I will know that like the bushes in the forest around me, they have the deepest of roots, that they go a long way within me and reach into every part of my body. Such is the curse of the blackberry bushes. I suppose they only bother me because I know that they will dominate the country if they can, like the worst sort of colonist, leaving a little ground cover for any other shrub or fern. Soon enough the whole island would be clad in blackberry if only we all gave up, ceded power to this prolific weed. In the end they'll take over anyway, I suppose. At least that is my fear. That you will find them in every wet forest, spurting out of man-fern trunks, out-competing the scaparia or mountain rocket. No more snowberry, pinkberry or turquoiseberry. Only blackberry. Crusher of every genus. King of all ecosystems. Okay. I'm being melodramatic. And maybe I like the futile task of picking blackberry shoots out of the dirt, trimming the canes away. It keeps me close to the earth, gives me a purpose to mosey into the shadowy corners of the forest. Of course, I'm the sort of person who has little love for high-tech solutions, so I won't come at them with a brush cutter very often. And I don't like the thought of using poison on them, which is what is often recommended. Perhaps I'd enjoy doing battle with them with a bill hook or an antique scythe. But I also like contending with them at arm's length, a kind of hand-to-hand combat. I sometimes see bees or moths or even frogs amidst their foliage, as if these creatures simply shrug at the invasive plants and get on with it. And I do understand what the blackberries are all about. Throughout the summer I watch them put out their pretty flowers, hoping to be pollinated. And soon enough their fruit will appear, and they will hope to see them chewed up and swallowed, and then the seed within will be shut out somewhere fortuitous and fertile, so that the bush may be propagated elsewhere. When I lop the vines, they burst forth anew, bright green and full of verve, 
sometimes seeming to be cantilevered. Or they grow out as beefy burgundy canes, athletic hoops looping toward bare ground in the hopes of putting down another node of roots. Or else they seem to get stubborn and start to produce an inordinate amount of thorns like some medieval armour, a device of torture, a protective mechanism that's meant to make me afraid to go out into the undergrowth. Their rhythm is pretty obvious, and it's hard to be judgmental of it. They just want to be alive. It's not their fault they do it so ferociously and suppress the diversity of other lives in my midst. So I try not to hate the blackberries, which works most of the time. I only falter when I have their spines in painful spots, like when they get wedged into the knuckles of my fingers. But when life gives you blackberries, last autumn my neighbour and I went out and picked a bucket of blackberry fruit, then threw it in a fermenter with a champagne yeast and sort of forgot about it. Eventually my neighbour bottled it, I think, and then he moved to Hobart, and I suppose our attempt at blackberry wine is still sitting in some old stubbies, somewhere cool I hope, although I wouldn't be surprised if every bottle has burst, for the instinct to expand is not at all contained in the process of turning it into alcohol. If it is drinkable, I bet it's potent stuff. The kind of drink that makes you think you're invincible, like a blackberry bush. It's written into the plant's biology, I guess. Strange how in the ancient myth it was fruit that got the blame for the fall of the world. It wasn't pizza or falafel that was responsible for opening eyes and spurring new human ambitions. I suppose it happens though. And sometimes I feel like I too have nibbled on the mystical fruit, as the old poet put it. Lately I had a friend of mine tell me another anecdote about fruit. She was on this beautiful island and met a gorgeous, gutsy woman, an absolute stunner. I was smitten, she said. Besotted. They got talking and seemed to hit it off. And then this gorgeous woman pulled a pear out of her rucksack. Would you like one, she offered to my friend. They're perfectly ripe. 
It was so suggestive, my friend said. Pears are the sexiest fruit after all. So she took this pear and bit into it slowly. Almost sensuously, she told me. The pear was as hard as a cricket ball. It was tart and it gave her cotton mouth. I fell out of love on the spot, she said. I was unsmitten, unbesotted. How could this woman know anything about romance if she didn't know about the ripeness of pears? I remembered that an old girlfriend of mine long ago loaned me a novel that I didn't much like, apart from a memorable description of pears. I too had come to learn of the generous loveliness of pears. Sweet, soft flesh. Lumpy, asymmetrical, curvaceous, golden bodies. Symbolic of all the beauty of physical beings. Which, when you think of it, was quite a gift. I read that novel nearly 15 years ago and still I can recall the moment that I was awakened to the appeal of this fruit. So maybe it wasn't such a bad book after all. And sometime later I was in Riga, the capital city of Latvia. I had taken the train there in the hopes of making some money from a poetry contest. The prize was 50 lats, about 100 bucks. And I figured that could keep me alive for you know, two or three more months. In the meantime, I lived off coins I found in the city streets. One morning, I found something like 15 cents. It was a bright day, one of the first days of spring, and I decided to buy myself a picnic lunch to eat in the park. In the marketplace, I showed off these coins, and the ladies smirked behind their stalls, but eventually one of them went through her piles of produce and pulled out the biggest, wonkiest, most sumptuous pear she could find from it and swapped it for my tiny silver coins. I went back to the park and held that pear carefully in my hands. It wasn't particularly warm, but the sun was out and this was the Baltics after all. It didn't need to be 100 degrees for people to feel the heat and sense they were about to be wakened by it. Everyone was emerging from hibernation. I knew not a soul in the city, but this didn't cause an experience of loneliness. This was solitude, an encounter with a deeper self, and I enjoyed watching the passers-by going about their daily business while I sat solitary, unoccupied, peaceful. And I contemplated that pair for a long time before I bit into it. I knew it might be the only thing I ate that day, but this did not at all get in the way of the fact that I was utterly content. And a thought flashed before my mind. If I can make this a habit, if I can make this part of the rhythm of my life, if it is normal for me to have nothing to do with my day except to eat a single pear and really enjoy it, then I will be a happy person. This pair was a companion. Slowly, perhaps sensuously, I ate the pair bite by bite. 
The juice ran down my chin. Was it sexy? I don't reckon so. Was it the perfect pair? Probably not. But it became an important image in my life, that pair. My minimalistic picnic in the park. So these days I do tend to take my time with fruit. And it's not the season for yummy pears right now. So I might meditate instead on a nectarine or a plum. Or even on a single blueberry or a native cherry. Or if not that, then just a cup of tea. Or the sight of a shadow. Or the texture of a stone. The look of a tree. A beer. A poem. And did I win that poetry contest? You bet I didn't. But that night, at the event which took place in an old Soviet warehouse, I made a friend. You might not believe me when I say her name, but it was Maria Bumieri. Maria Pear.